We invite you to Psalms chapter 1 this morning. We'll read the chapter, six verses. Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. There we read, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And overall in the psalm, and especially as defined in verse 6, is our title, Two Ways. Two Ways. And not only from this text, but in the Bible, we would emphasize there are only two ways. And people can all be categorized and fitted into those two ways. Two groups, two ways. Two eternities. Nothing in between, no neutral ground, and nothing else. So this is the black and white reality that Scripture sets before us, and it should humble us. There are not multiple choice options when it comes to life or eternity there are only two and that's it and here in the first chapter of psalms we see that contrast clearly sets forth when you read this and think about it just a little bit you may think back to the lord's words in the sermon on the mount matthew 7 verse 13 and 14 when we he spoke also i think very similarly and about the same thing as david is saying here about the two ways. I'll read that very quickly for you. So, uh, Matthew 7 and 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. So these verses complement one another in telling us about those ways, and in particular our subject today in Psalms 1, is the individuals on those ways. And we would categorize these, as stated in the text from verse 6, as the righteous and the ungodly. And again, there are no other categories. A person is either righteous in the sight of God or ungodly in the sight of God. Now, you might be many things in the sight of men, but that's not going to count. As the old saying goes, that won't hold water on the day of judgment. We all fall into one of these two categories, and if you're saved today, you fit both those categories. You were ungodly, God saved you, and now you have a righteousness, although the flesh is still ungodly. The lost are just ungodly. There is no righteousness in them whatsoever. So better to fit both those categories and the experience of conversion than only one and to be lost and perishing. 
The one speaks as the verse begins in verse 1 of the blessedness of the righteous. And that individual is described, the righteous, in the first three verses. And then we have the vanity, you might say, is the best way to summarize it, of the ungodly in verses 4 and verse 5. So think with me about two ways, two ways. And of course, being a great fan of the book Pilgrim's Progress and John Bunyan, uh, we immediately have thoughts that when we talk about a way or the way, we are really talking about a journey. And even the secular world does this, poets, songwriters, and all, that, that life is indeed a journey. And the Bible reminds us of how short a journey it is. But a journey is inferred when you talk about a way or the way or two different ways. So in a journey, we're talking about other things, aren't we? In a journey, we're talking about travel. And we're talking about if you're traveling or you're on a journey, whether you like it or not, you're going in some direction. You can't travel without being going in a direction of some sorts. And then, of course, and this is what we're talking about in our text today, there is the manner in which you travel or make that journey. It's not only directional, but it's filled with how you do that, how you deal with obstacles, how the way goes, what you meet, what you encounter, how you deal with it, all right? And that's particularly what we'll be talking about from the text today. Now, we would humbly say to you and remind you before we pursue this that the difference between the righteous and the ungodly is nothing but the grace of God. People aren't born into the world righteous and others born into the world ungodly and remain that so and can never change. That we're not in a, a spiritual caste system like social caste are, you know, where that whatever system you were born into as a peasant, you could never be king. And, you know, if you were born into the king's lineage, then you would always be royal and never be a peasant. Now, that doesn't apply spiritually because we've all sinned. We all come fallen sinners in Adam, and only the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ can make us righteous. So as I said before, all believers, all of the elect are ungodly who have been chosen, who grace has been administered to and have been converted and now have a righteousness in Christ. So again, as Paul once said, who maketh you to differ from another? And that is God in his grace and the Lord Jesus Christ's death. And if that hasn't been applied to you, then there is no difference. And a difference needs to be made. So we praise God today. If you're saved, that you can count yourself in the righteous. But we do that not because we are self-righteous, but because he has made us righteous by and through the grace of Christ. Well, let's talk about the way of the righteous man as we see it described here in the first three verses. There are obviously very notable characteristics, if you paid attention as I read through that, about the righteous man that is, as it says, blessed. And he is blessed because he or she, regardless of the gender, 
is righteous in Christ. So let's look at these notable characteristics here that are mentioned. And the first three that are mentioned in verse 1 all involve posture. They all involve posture. You notice that? There is the walking, there is the standing, and then there is the setting. And before we discuss those phrases individually, I would just have you note this from a broad perspective. Think about this. A journey, traveling, you got to be moving. If you're sitting, you're not going anywhere. If you're standing, you're not going anywhere. You got to be walking. There's got to be motion or you're just calling it traveling and you're going nowhere. And sadly, that's the state too many times of a lot of Christians. I want you to notice the progression because this should warn us about backsliding and about the things and interaction with sinners that we see in this also. As long as you are walking, you're doing good. When you stop walking, what are you doing? Standing. Forward motion has ceased. You're in one place. And then the longer a person tends to stand in one place, what happens next? There is the natural tendency to want to sit down and get comfortable in that place. So I think there's a lesson in that. Christians keep moving. Be careful that others don't get you to stand around with them. And then initially, finally, you can end up sitting with them. Then you're in deep trouble as a Christian. Well, the righteous man doesn't let this happen, as we see from these three postures here that are mentioned. And in fact, uh, the righteous man literally has a different objective than the ungodly does. So keep moving with purpose and do not stop, do not be hindered. As the Bible says in another place, we're running a race. And when you quit running, you're in trouble. If you stop and stand around, you're in real trouble. And if you stop in the race and sit down or lay down, wow, that's almost hopeless, isn't it? So note the postures. The first one says... The righteous man walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And in this, we're talking about, again, his manner, way of traveling through life or habits in his life is not to be involved, caught up, or distracted with the counsel of the ungodly. What are we talking about when we're talking about counsel? If you seek counsel, what are you looking for? If you give counsel, what are you giving? You're giving some form of advice. And hopefully it's substantial advice. A lot of counsel, however, on a lot of things doesn't amount to no but nothing more than somebody giving somebody else their opinion, which ain't worth any more than the opinion of the person they're giving it to. Good advice Good counsel is focused upon one thing, truth, truth. Good counsel is somebody that speaks honestly and truthfully, okay? Now, the counsel of the ungodly is foreign for truth. (laughs) 
I mean, the ungodly are seeking to do ungodly things in ungodly ways. God is not at all in their thoughts. And so you can't expect an ungodly person to give you godly counsel. It's not going to happen. The counsel of the ungodly will be the opinions, the advice, and the philosophy of a sinner who's dead in trespasses and sin. That's the last thing a Christian needs to get caught up in or listen to is the counsel of the ungodly. The best thing you can listen to is the counsel of the godly, but certainly not the ungodly in that sense. And when we talk about counsel here again, we're talking about, again, the journey. We're talking about the purpose of life, the manner of life, the advice, opinions, and things like that. The righteous man has a purpose in his journey. The ungodly are without purpose because they're called, as we'll get to, chaff. No purpose. Undefined. Uh, in some sense, you can't even pin down the opinions of the ungodly because they're in a constant state of fluctuation. Look at human history. Trends, philosophies, popularity, new ideas, and all kinds of ungodly things have them in a constant state of counsel. It doesn't stay the same. So the godly man, the righteous man, travels with purpose without giving heed to the purpose, advice, opinions, or counsels of the world. Very important. He's on a mission. The Bible is his map book. And if somebody says, hey, you're going the wrong way, there's a shortcut, that's a detour up ahead, you need to go this way, he doesn't listen to that counsel. He listens to, thus saith the Lord. And we've all gotten in trouble by getting bad counsel or thinking that, uh, as the text says in another place, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. You know where that way comes from? The counsel of the ungodly. So the righteous man does not walk by taking literally directions from the ungodly or the world, but he gets his directions for his purpose and his journey from the Word of God. Okay? Very to understand. And I want to say this, there is a distinct difference between the walk of the godly and the walk of the ungodly. Should be clear cut. Second thing the posture mentions, standeth in the way of sinners. So again, not stopping. The devil and the ungodly in the world wants us to stop. It wants us to be distracted. It wants to get us to stumble, to hang up, to fall, whatever it may be, to stop forward progress and again Bunyan illustrated that marvelously in Pilgrim's Progress you can think back on that book if you're familiar with it and think about all the things along the way that Christian encountered to try to get him what? to stop to get him stopped in his journey stopped in his purpose and not be able to reach his destination well that's what the devil's up to and that's what the world's up to in that respect so stop you know, you travel somewhere, you may get uh, thirsty and you want to stop and get something to drink. Uh, you may get hungry and stop to eat. You may get low of fuel and have to stop in that. Uh, you know, 
the righteous, when we stop or pause in this world, it needs to be for necessity and not because we've been tempted and are yielding to some temptation in that regard. In other words, standing is the temptation has got your attention enough to stop and pay attention. Like looking at a billboard or something catches your eye and, and you know, instead of keeping on going, you, got, you stop or you pause and take a look at it. And many times that's the way temptation comes. Start with is something visual in that regard. But this simply means to stand in the way of sinners. If you're standing, you're giving time. Time to, and literally I would say it like this. I define it like this. Mingling with the habits and activities of the ungodly or sinners. Okay? And the Bible says not to do that very clearly. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 is a clear passage on this that again needs to be shouted I believe from rooftops today and is ungodly. It ought not be so. It ought not be so. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Ephesians 5 and 11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And without going into details on that verse, I'd say the first way you reprove them is not by running up to them with a bitter attitude and shaking your finger in their face, but your abstinence from their activity. That speaks so loud. I had somebody speaking to me this week, uh, and it was in sort of a joking manner. And but I'll just share it. Just come to me, you know, uh, somebody that I knew uh, in a way, and asked me something about the weekend and something like that or something. I can't remember or the days. Well, you gonna uh, you gonna hit the bars this weekend and do this and that? And I said, No, <laughs> I'm certainly not going to do that. And he said, Well, what what do you, what do you you not you know that's entertaining. I said, That's pretty poor entertainment if you ask me. I mean, if you have to go to bars and do a bunch of drinking and stuff, and what and he mentioned dancing and what, I mean, if, if that's entertainment, that's that's pretty poor entertainment, you know, in, in that respect. Uh, but that's exactly what we're talking about, you know, mingling with that, and it is. It it was a burden to my heart, you know, because I knew they really didn't agree down deep that that was a waste of time and money. And if that's all you got, you don't have nothing. That's, that's the chaff and the ungodly there. But again, and thirdly, uh, 1 Corinthians again, uh, chapter 15 and verse 33. Another scripture that speaks clearly to this point. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good men. So you get to stopping, you stop and you get to mingling with, and the next thing you know, you're, you're dabbling in, and your progress is stopped and hindered, like sometimes when Christian made the wrong decision or was tempted. 
The third posture, sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So now we went from walking to stopping, standing, to sitting in the seat of the scornful. The righteous man does not do this. So he's gone from moving to stopping to now getting comfortable where he has stopped. Sounds I kept thinking of Lot, you know, as I noted this progression. And, of course, there have been many others that have followed the same tendency of Lot. You know, his soul was still vexed, but he was somewhat comfortable in Sodom or he'd have got out of there a long time before. But when it talks about the scornful here, it's talking about people that talk arrogantly, proudly, perhaps even mockingly and critically of your faith, your hope, the Bible of God. It could be from somebody very shallow in religion to the extreme of an atheist. All of those would be included as scoffers. Literally, if they have not faith, they're scoffing. Okay? Every person that is lost and not obedient to the gospel is a scoffer in some sense because they're not heeding or taking seriously the authority of the God of the Bible and the implications of the Word of God. So again, scoffers come in a wide range of various degrees but the righteous man pays no heed to them in that regard because they are devoid of biblical truth in that regard. Matthew chapter 6, I believe here in a couple of verses there that speak to this end. Matthew 6 and verse 6 says, But when thou pray... That's not the verse I wanted to read. I'm sorry, 16. I can't read my own writing here. Matthew 16 and 6. When Jesus said, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So again, they were scoffers. They scoffed at Christ. They scoffed at all kinds of things. Yet they were very religious, were they not? And down at verse 12, it was their doctrine that Christ was talking about that the disciples did not understand. All right. Those are characteristics that some have said are negative characteristics, meaning they're no-nos to the righteous man, the postures. Then it says in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. I mean, that's very simple. Do you love the Word of God? Do you like what's written in this book? His delight is in the law of God. And Brother C.D. Cole made a remarkable statement, I believe, on this. And you know, this would preach in another message, I believe. But many quote-unquote Christians only love the promises in the book. But the real litmus test of your faith in Christianity is this. And hear me now. Do you love the commandments of the book? Jesus said, if you love me, he didn't say you'll keep looking forward to the promises. He said you'll keep my commandments. And if you don't love them, you're not going to keep them. If you don't like them, you're not going to keep them. So, again, what kind of Christian are you today? If you claim to be a Christian, do you love just the promises? Honestly answer it in your own mind. Or do you love to do His will as our Lord did? Delights in the law of God. I'd rather hear what God said than a hundred things that people have said. Hadn't you? Because I know what God said is true. 
And I have to try to figure out whether what other people are telling me is true or not. I don't have to do that with the Word of God. I like the blessings I get from this book. I've not got those similar things from anything else, even comparable. So the righteous person, the saved man, the disciple of Christ loves the words of Christ. A perfect illustration is this, Martha and Mary. Which one of them you think, love? both of them love the Lord. We don't, we don't make that distinction at all. But while one was preoccupied, the other couldn't seem to get enough of what Christ said. And it was Mary. She sat at his feet, didn't she? Martha got a little distracted, and Jesus, I believe, helped get her back on track, you know. But again, you love the Word of God if you're a child of God. And it says here something else that, again, is deserving of a whole message. We've preached on it a long time before, but consider it for a moment. And in his law doth meditate day and night. Meditation is a lost art. There's freaks that meditate on things, but they're not meditating on the Word of God. Any type of meditation that's not centered on the Word of God is a wasted meditation. You're just wasting your time, energy, and your mind. It's, on, it's built on wood, hay, and stubble, whatever it is. Yoga and all that junk, it's absolute waste of time. It may profit you in some mental way, but it'll be minute. It may profit you in some physiological way if it's a state of relaxation, but it's not going to do anything for your soul. Meditation. Meditating on what? God's Word, God's law. And it says day and night. Now, this doesn't mean sitting in a dark corner somewhere like a monk and not doing anything else and just constantly, you know, in a state of, of 24-7 meditation. No, we don't live our lives like that. Meditation, again, can be in degrees. All right? If you're thinking of the Word of God, if a scripture comes to mind like that, there is, that's minimal meditation. You're thinking about it. If you really have the time, and we're not advising anybody should abandon their job or their duty on their job to be meditating on the Word of God. I mean, you know, those thoughts can come and go as long as you can do your job, all right? Whatever our activity may be, leisure or job. But to really meditate seriously then is to, like praying in your closet or in some private, quiet place, literally, what you'll understand as country folk, chewing the could. You take that morsel, that scripture, that, that whatever chapter, whatever it may be that comes to your mind, and you just keep chewing it for all the savor that there is in it. And I'll tell you as a preacher, this is where sermons come from is meditation. The best sermons you have ever heard did not come from anything but a meditation, whether it was recently or a long time ago, upon a precious morsel of God's Word. That's where sermons come from. So it's in the mind, it's in degrees. So the man does do this. And then we have the illustration of him as a tree, and it says... Planted by the rivers of water. And now we have to emphasize here the planted part. Because again, once we were ungodly. All right? We were all that. But every person that has been born again and saved in that respect is like a plant that has been planted by the master's hand. I read to you this morning, opening the service about the Lord, my beloved 
planting a vineyard, okay? Those plants in there are of the Lord's doing. Well, if you've been saved by grace, you got planted in the Lord's garden. And we're supposed to bring forth fruit there and serve Him and so forth and so on, right? It's a marvelous illustration. God does the planting, and the planting is by the hand of grace. You know anything that's planted by rivers of water? The necessity of water to anything that grows. There is life in water. Jesus used the illustration physically in a spiritual sense about living water to the woman at the well. But again, the rivers of water here can mean nothing but the Lord himself, the fountain of life, the living water, and the biblical truth of God's word. It is the word of God that must nourish the soul of the believer. It waters the soul in that regard. And God, if he saves us, gives us some degree of hunger and thirsting for the word of God. And the more you feed upon it or the more you drink from it, the more it nourishes the soul. So God doesn't just save us and leave us in a burying place. No, he puts us in a plants us just like I literally could say he plants the Holy Spirit within you. He can plant you in a church and does, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, with the anticipation that what? What does the scripture say? That bringeth forth his fruit in his seasons. It don't matter how good a plant you've got. If it doesn't get nourished with the proper amount of water, it's not going to bring forth fruit. You can forget it. These are necessities. You know it if you've ever tried to grow anything. But it will be fruitful and the fruitfulness of the righteous man is because of his planting. It is God through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God that nourishes the individual soul to bring forth fruit acceptable unto God and that makes him distinct in the world. It also says his leaf will not wither. Well, if he's going to be fruitful, it's not going to be a bunch of dried up leaves. If there's going to be fruit on the vine, the leaves are going to look pretty good too. But even when it's out of season, you can tell a healthy plant, the leaf will not wither. And when you think about leaves withering, what ultimately does that mean? Drying up and dying, doesn't it? says the righteous man will be preserved and the righteous man will persevere because the Lord is providing a constant supply of grace to nourish the soul of his people. It also says this, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And again, this, this doesn't mean material prosperity, not primarily. It means spiritual prosperity, first of all. Then the material things follow thereafter. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17, a verse that speaks of this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Okay, see that? You know, that in Christ, by faith, by grace, that's where the roots go down and the plant becomes stable, grounded, rooted and grounded, we call it, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and in love to be a fruitful, non-leaf withering testimonial for a Christian. And there's a similar verse in Colossians that 
that I really like because it mentions one of the postures again about walking. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, Ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. What does that mean? Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. My, how that applies to the tree planted by the rivers of water. So again, the prosperity here is first of all spiritual, not material, rooted in Christ, rooted in the mind of Christ, the ways of Christ, the doctrines of Christ, the teaching of Christ, which is all in the Word of God, and the soul prospers. And where the soul prospers, the material thing will either be irrelevant or just icing on the cake. Now we come to the ungodly quickly, and it just bluntly says, notice this in verse 4, after saying all of these things, all of these good things about the righteous man, the ungodly are not so. It's just not so. In other words, the things I have just described and the characteristics of the righteous, they do not apply. Do not apply to the ungodly. None of those things I just said can we apply to the ungodly to sinners, to those who are lost, perishing, and dead in trespasses and sin. Visualize in your mind what we just left. A flourishing tree in a wonderfully fertile and nourished place where there's plenty of water. Having beautiful, bright green leaves. Flourishing and bearing abounding in fruit. The ungodly are not so. Now, what's the contrast? We go to chaff, which for us, since we don't winnow our own grain and so forth and so on, let's just think of straw, because that's about all it amounts to. Straw or grass that's been mowed and dried up. Anything like that. What, what's the characteristics of chaff? Not like that tree we discussed. Just the opposite. The first thing we notice about straw or about chaff or dead grass and that, again, it's worthless. Pretty much worthless. I mean, when you think about wheat straw or any kind of straw or chaff that would come from grain if we wintered grain, it makes good mulch, don't it? It don't make good mulch because it has any uh, thing in it that feeds the plant all it can really do is by his presence hold some moisture. It's pretty much worthless. It's undesirable. It's not edible. <laughs> okay, it does. There's no fruit there that would benefit an individual. So it has little benefit or purpose. This is the center that's lost. Life, the journey, the way of the ungodly, God says, is like the chaff. It amounts to, you might as well say, a presence or an existence, but no real purpose, no real benefit, doesn't contribute anything, can't do anything, and in most cases ends up either rotting or being burned. That's sad, but that's the testimonial scripture. Back a few pages from our text in the book of Job, chapter 21. Uh, we have a similar statement there. Job speaking says in verse 17 and 18, How oft is the candle of the wicked put out? And how oft cometh their destruction upon them? 
God distributeth sorrows in His anger. They are as stubble before the wind and as chaff that the storm carried away. And then there's a scripture in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, we want to bring into this. Therefore, as the fire, excuse me, devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their roots shall be as rottenness, their blossoms shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the Holy One of Israel. Mark that same contrast between the ungodly and the righteous there, and how they view the Word of God. So the chaff is worthless, undesirable, amounts to nothing, produces no fruit. And again, it says, driven or carried away by the wind. It is so sad as we look about our fellow man's loved ones, co-workers, neighbors, and so forth, to see them living a life without purpose, without direction, totally unstable. I mean, they may be a Republican today, a Democrat tomorrow. They may like this music today and distaste it tomorrow. It's just, just, there's no stability. Some more than others, but ultimately, when it's all said and done, they've just been carried through their life by the whims and fickleness of the culture, the society, the people they're around, etc., etc. And it's literally to live a life without any root whatsoever of any kind. That is so very sad, but that's the world we live in. Driven or carried by the wind, the text says. The chaff which the wind driveth away. I want you to think about this. I'm not being cute. There's no motors in chaff, is there? There's no wings on chaff. There's no propellers. There's nothing in the chaff that is alive, that propels itself, that controls its direction, that has a compass that sets where it's going, how high it's going to go. When it, None of that is it. It is just an inanimate, light piece of nothing that is at the complete dispensing of the wind and the will of the wind. Now... That's a sad state to consider when we're talking about people. But that's what the Bible says. And there is a very relevant message there. Well, what is the force that drives the ungodly? What is it that controls them if they don't control themselves in that regard? And they think they're in total control. We all did, didn't we? There was a way that seemed right unto a man, but we found out it wasn't the right way, right? Well, we know from the Bible that sin... Sin is a great thing that leads the ungodly and the sinners astray. And sin, when we speak of sin, we're speaking of Satan. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 tells us, those who are dead in trespasses and sin are led about by the influence of Satan. They walk according to the prince of power of the air. He's the wind that's filling their sails, so to speak. They think they're in control. They think they're making their own decisions to get them where they want to go in life, and they don't realize no more than we did that they're just like a bull being led about with a ring in its nose. It's not that hard to do. I've seen some big old bulls, but you know what? You, they got a ring in their nose. It's not hard to control them at all. Not hard at all. And sadly, that's exactly the description we have. The culture, deceivers, the trends, the traditions, and all of these things are the wind that carries about the ungodly. This direction one moment, that direction tomorrow, next week totally different again.
but all just floating around. Sometimes we say it like stumbling through life. That's the testimony of some of God's people. I was just stumbling through life, you know. And well, we were all stumbling spiritually. And then it says they will not stand in the judgment. Not stand in judgment. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to get chaff to stand any, any way, shape, or form. And there's no substance to it. And what is the comparison with the righteous quickly? A tree. A tree's got substance to it. It can stand. But chaff? I don't mean to be cute, but chaff don't have any legs because it don't have any roots like a tree does. So it will not stand in judgment. And as we read, it is fit for nothing but to be burned. The final, final thing it says here about the ungodly, nor shall they stand in the congregation of the righteous. People call themselves whatever they feel like, and people deceive themselves in thinking someday they're going to be in heaven. A lot of people want to go to heaven for who's in heaven. People they've known that are there to be with them and so forth and so on. But the ungodly who live their life as chaff to themselves, to the world, to the tendencies of the world, the appetites of the world, satisfying the flesh, fulfilling the lust of the flesh and of the eye and so forth and so on, they will not be found in the assembly of the saints in heaven. We read about this, Christ talked about it. Many will say to me in that day, you know, have we not done this? Have we not done that? And he literally said, I don't know you. You're not going to be with the assembly of the saints. The Bible makes it very clear. The ungodly will not be present with the righteous. The wheat will not be present with the tares. The sheep will not be with the goats. There will be a judgment. And some will go to the left hand and into eternity of misery and suffering and torment. Others on the right hand will be blessed. Final thing it says in verse 6, the way of the ungodly shall perish. That's the ultimate end. The way of sinners without grace, without Christ, without obedience to the gospel of the word of God is a vain life, an empty life, a worthless life that ultimately ends in the perishing of the soul just as the man in Luke 16 two ways two men two eternities and the one that had it good in this life perished for all eternity we simply conclude today to say that if you are one of those who are living a life of your own if the Holy Spirit shows you today that your life really is nothing more than chaff that can all change. That can all change. The Bible says that change comes about by repenting of your sins and believing upon Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins. And then as we have read, you have His righteousness imparted unto you. You are His child and you follow Him. Then you can be blessed. Ultimately, bottom line, there is no blessing to speak of outside of Jesus Christ. Blessed 
is the man. I'll generically say today, blessed is the individual that we've described in the first three verses and perishing is the person that is without Christ in the latter verses. We pray that the Spirit of God may cause those who are here today to examine their own heart. And again, if your life is in disarray, empty, hopeless, that you may seek the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, and your life will take meaning at the moment you are converted. May God bless this to your soul.